Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... Breathe in and out. Easy, not so much for a Massachusetts resident who inhaled 50 days of polluted air in 2020. Plus, with fall foliage comes piles of dead leaves and the ubiquitous leaf blowers. But environmentally conscientious consumers may want to rethink their use. And we're zeroing in on important takeaways from the UN Climate Change Conference this month. It's our Environmental Roundtable. Later in the show, Marvel superheroes rule. According to a recent survey, comic book nerds and movie fans are captured by the superheroes and the villains of the Marvel Universe. Now a new book reveals the background and details that have made Marvel characters top entertainment. All of the Marvels, a journey to the ends of the biggest story ever told, is our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Hello, Beth. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Cabell Eames, political director of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Hi, Cabell. Hello, Callie. Happy to be here with you all. I'm glad to have you again. And Dr. Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Hello, Dr. Bernstein. Hello, Callie. Nice to be here. Yes. All right. So let's all jump into what's known as COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference. There was much, much conversation about it on our airwaves and in our media outlets because this is very important. And among those folks that you all know very well who are paying attention to the important issues that were raised at that conference. A little later, we'll talk about general response to the conference. But here's President Joe Biden speaking at the COP26 Climate Summit earlier this month in Glasgow. Will we act? Will we do what is necessary? Will we seize the enormous opportunity before us? Or will we condemn future generations to suffer? This is the decade that will determine the answer, this decade. The science is clear. We only have a brief window left before us to raise our ambitions and to raise to meet the task that's rapidly narrowing. All right, so they knew they had a charge to get something done at this conference that was significant. And there's a lot that happened. I want to zero in on a few things. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Bernstein, because more than 40 countries pledged to green their health care systems by cutting carbon emissions. So first, why is that important, given that it feels like we've heard this before? But what does this pledge mean now? It's a major event in 
the trajectory of climate action in the United States. And it's major because healthcare is contributing more than a lot of other parts of our society to greenhouse gas emissions, somewhere about five to 10% of their whole nation's emissions come from healthcare. But I would argue it's even a bigger deal because we know that health messages on climate, especially when delivered by those within healthcare, are transformative in how everyone understands the urgency of action around climate. And I think it's critical to acknowledge that right here in Boston, uh, we have some of the leaders who have been pushing on uh, this issue for a long time, and including Gary Cohn and Healthcare Without Harm, have really worked to build you know, international movement to raise healthcare's prominence on climate and to push healthcare forward on decarbonization. So you've indicated that there's some examples in Boston happening right now. Yeah, we can be very proud that Boston Medical Center is one of the most advanced uh, hospitals in the world when it comes to figuring out how to get carbon out of healthcare. Boston Medical Center participated in what was at the time about four years ago, the largest power purchase agreement for solar energy along with MIT. They've installed a very high performance cogeneration plant. And, and I think what's critical is Boston Medical Center is the hospital that provides care to anyone, regardless of their ability to pay. So if Boston Medical Center sees this as an important thing to do. And, and when you hear Kate Walsh, the CEO of BMC, talk about it, it's, it, it is, of course, because it's the right thing to do. But she'll also tell you that this was a critical part of the finances of the hospital. So if BMC can do this, anybody can do it. And so we have a shining example there. There's been tremendous actions at Partners Healthcare, um, which has really been a major advancer of green building within healthcare. Um, and so we do have some really great examples of greening of healthcare in, in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay, so that's one thing that came out of COP26. I'm turning over to you, Cabell, because something that was raised very dramatically was the impact of the climate crisis on women specifically. There was a day dedicated to looking at this impact, but also there was a unique way of raising the issue. So talk about, first of all, the little Amal, the giant puppet representing the young Syrian refugee girl, and what came out of the discussion about women bearing the brunt of the climate crisis. Yeah, I watched this video over and over again. I found it to be really, really powerful, the video of little Amali and the Samoan climate activist Brianna Fruin, who brought the giant puppet that was to represent the young Syrian refugee. It was extremely powerful, and I think that it underscored the issue that 80% of the displaced by climate-related disasters and changes around the world are women and girls. And but you know, yet 74% of those that the speaking time went to those that identify as men at the UN climate talk. So, you know, it, it, it underscored the issue that women are disproportionately affected by the effects of climate change in many countries, that they are the first responders for their families and communities. But I do think it was a real swing and a miss to have not heard from more women, and particularly indigenous women at the UN talks. Was this a breakthrough, even a small one? I, I hesitate to use the word, given what you've said, that the issue was raised at all? 
I mean, you know, I am glad that it was raised, but you know, when you don't have, when you don't have women speaking to it, when you're not, when you don't have a whole indigenous party of women speaking to the issue more dramatically other than just one day, I think, you know, it's sure you're, you're uplifting it, but it's just a day, right? We really need to carry out these policies and listen to our indigenous leaders, listen to our women who are leaders in their communities more frequently because these spaces are just primarily occupied by elected officials who are men. All right. We're talking about takeaways from COP26. There were many, many, many areas that were touched there and decisions that were made. We're uh, honing in on three of them. So I want to turn to deforestation. Dr. Bernstein, you noted that there, again, 100 countries, including Brazil, China, and Russia, vowed to end deforestation by 2030. First, why is deforestation important as we talk about environmental concerns? And second, again, why is this coming together of these 100 countries really important? Deforestation is about 10%, some would say 20% of the global emissions of greenhouse gases. There is an abundance of scientific research showing that chopping down forests, uh, particularly in the tropics, but also in places like New England, can contribute to emerging diseases. And so when we take actions to conserve nature or taking climate actions, we're also taking pandemic prevention actions. And, and we, we hosted a task force, international task force on addressing future pandemic risk at Harvard this summer. And one of the main findings from this group of scientists and policymakers <clears throat> was that we really needed to invest in conservation as a way to prevent future pandemic risk. And then of course, there's the reality that the forests in many of those countries, Brazil being a prime example, where there are existing tropical forests, are protected by indigenous peoples who have done an extraordinary job of protecting those forests. And so there is the indigenous people's rights elements of forest conservation. And the bottom line is we radically undervalue the world's forests when it comes to our own well-being. And that's not for just the folks living in the forests. That's for people living here in Boston and around the world. Mm. So, Beth, the piece uh, published in The Conversation U.S. was really eye-opening because the headline is a grabber. Organized crime is a top driver of global deforestation, along with beef, soy, palm oil, and wood products. We're focusing on the wood products, but organized crime, I can hear people saying, what are you talking about? It was fascinating to me, too. I mean, we know that meat is one of the biggest drivers of deforestation and palm oil and, and, and a few other things. But the fundamental finding of the piece was that there's illegal deforestation happening because of organized crime all the time. And this particular researcher analyzed how traffickers illegally log and raise cattle in protected areas in Central America to launder money and uh, and also claim, frankly, drug smuggling territory. Um, and, and actually there's a term for it called narco deforestation. Um, wow. And some scholars have estimated that anywhere from 30 to 60% of deforestation in Central America is, is quote, narco deforestation. In addition to that, a lot of very profitable industries like palm oil, meat, soy, and wood is legal, but it has its underworld tentacles as well. But the takeaway is that that makes it all really hard to manage. You know, Mm, we can't even do it with the legal structure. How are we going to do it with with this sort of underworld structure? And um, 
it, it was really eye-opening. It was one of the most popular stories um, around climate. And I don't see a solution to it right away, but it's something that we need to be aware of when we start thinking about how to fix deforestation. Yeah, I it was completely eye-opening. It is just a reminder that the issues that we're talking about in this conversation always are really not isolated in some little corner of environmental. I mean, environmental is the whole environment. <laughs> and stuff is happening at, at every arena that is, it's all interconnected. It, it just becomes more and more clear that it is. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me remotely are Beth Daly of The Conversation U.S., Cabell Eames of Better Future Project, and Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's our environmental roundtable discussion. All right, I can't leave the COP26 discussion without Greta Thunberg, who seemed to embody a lot of the frustration that many people had, not just the young people that she represents, but others who feel like COP26 was not successful, frankly. So here's Greta Thunberg taking the stage in Milan at the pre-COP26 Youth for Climate conference, talking about actions over words. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 25. 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero, blah, blah, blah. Climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. Okay, is that fair, Cabell? Oh my goodness, yes, that is absolutely fair. I mean, I think back to the early 90s when we first heard about this, when the IPCC was first created in 1988. I mean, we have known about these issues that were coming before us for decades, and we have done nothing. And as Bill McKibben says, we should not be giving homework to 17-year-olds to fix our climate change problem. This has been the failures of governments for years and the anger and frustration and overall sorrow that young people are now faced with, with these adult problems at young ages, did not have to happen. But because our governments have slow walked any solutions and because of the narratives of alternative energy back in the 90s to now renewable energy and the overall just stonewalling of the fossil fuel industry to let anything happen, I think just shows the anger and the frustration that so many young people face and the helplessness that parents feel when we're faced with these problems and our elected officials ignore the solutions. I think it was right on point. That's why she is so popular because people are feeling her rage and frustration and just downright despair. Same question to both of you, Beth, is it fair? Fixing climate is incredibly complicated, right? We haven't even gotten off the starting block. So yes, it's fair. It's gonna be really complicated to solve and I'm not sure we're gonna get there with the current political will across the world and debate. I just wanna point out that the worst thing I heard out of the climate conference was some expert who was there was commenting to a radio announcer and they said, what, what happened you know, at COP? And she said, ambition is on the agenda. And, and I mm. thought that was really bad because mm, wow. it's only yeah. on the agenda. 
we're not even we're not even there yet. So I think her words were fair, but I I do acknowledge this is like the most complicated problem the world has ever faced. And um, I do think going back to Aaron's point, I think the private sector is going to have to step up in a much more aggressive way to force the governments to follow suit. So, Last comment, Aaron. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we have made progress. And I think that anyone who's been in this country for the last eight years would feel better about the current government and its plans, including the infrastructure bill, what we've seen in states around the country, I think it's very hard to say we've made no progress. A very different statement is, have we gotten anywhere close to where we need to be? And the answer is absolutely not. And there's good reason for that. Cavill and Beth, I think, cited a couple of them. I, I think at the root cause of this nation's inability to act is that we've given up our democracy to people who have lots of money and power. And that won't ever work in the interests of people of lesser means and so to fix climate, to fix climate action, we have to look deep in our democratic soul. And I, and I, I actually think that most Americans are, are, are actually pretty agitated about this right now, that our congressional districts don't reflect our constituencies. And so I think one of the things we need to think about when we think about how we can get to where we need to go faster, we need to think about our democratic process. And we need to think about campaign finance reform. Think about the amount of money spent on political campaigns, which could be going to things we actually need, like better schools, better health care. I think you've got the potential to, to, to affect some change that will be good generically, but also on climate. Moving along to this report about Massachusetts communities experiencing up to 50 days of polluted air in 2020. First of all, I should say the pollution from that increases the risk of premature death and asthma attacks and cancer and other health impacts. So it's not something to just dismiss lightly and say, OK, well, then we'll have other days and it won't be so bad. Uh, this has a long term impact. So first, your response to the amount of polluted air, Dr. Bernstein, was that surprising to you? Well, air quality in Massachusetts has been getting much better. Oh, good. <laughs> now, the pace of, of improvement slowed, but starting in 2018, arguably got worse in 2019. Arguably, we've plateaued. But to me, the, the, the critical event of air quality in the past year was everyone waking up to what, what appeared to be a cloud that had descended upon our fair city in July, which was not a cloud at all, but was wildfire smoke from the West. Colleagues of mine at the Chan School describe Massachusetts as the tailpipe of America because of the jet stream. The air pollution of the rest of the country often sort of gets sucked into our airshed. And, and the wildfire smoke of the wildfire season really created the worst air quality day we've seen in, in many, many years. And, and we know that climate has influenced the risk of wildfire in the West. And so again, this is how climate matters, not just to where these extremes may occur, it, it matters to places far and wide. We in Boston probably have an undue share of pollution, particularly in environmental justice communities living near big roadways with lots of trucks. We can do better on the air emissions from traffic. We can also uh, address air emissions from buildings, which many more buildings are burning more natural gas. Our center put out a study in the past year showing that as a nation, there are now as many people dying from air pollution from burning natural gas in our power plants as there are from coal. And so we've gotten rid of coal in large share from power generation, which is great, but we should be clear that natural gas, while 
less polluting on a per unit energy basis is still polluting. And that's not just from a climate warming greenhouse gas perspective. It's also from an air pollution perspective. It's a major concern for the health of people and communities. And again, particularly communities that are living around these facilities that tend to be low wealth, tend to be communities of color. Cabell, I assume that's where you're going to pick up about, you know, the impact of, of this. So I want to get your response to this report. Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback on what Dr. Bernstein said, electrifying our buildings and the equipment and the transportation sector and transitioning to clean renewable energy while strengthening our federal uh, air quality standards needs to happen sooner rather than later. These plants that are being fought daily, uh, particularly in Peabody for one, there was a group of activists just this weekend that were standing out against the Peaker plant, you know, and our, again, our, our state officials can stop these types of plants from being put online. But, you know, again, the lack of political will here is really troubling. And these environmental justice communities are going to bear the brunt when you have them, some that are near playgrounds, for instance, in East Boston. So just to underscore the the fact that, you know, yeah, we had alarming haze over the summer and we had temperatures that felt like 100 degrees in June when our kids were back in school, you know, and it, and it came from California and it really just kind of brings us all back to the fact that we are neighbors of the West Coast and what's going on there affects us here. So I just think that it all brings it back to the fact that we just really need to work swiftly here to electrify our buildings and deal with air quality issues. Beth? Yeah, agreed. I mean, when I, when I saw that piece, I, I said to myself, um, wow, you know, COVID meant a lot of trucks and cars weren't on the road. So what is it? It's wildfires, most likely. We are improving in Massachusetts. I used to write when I was at the Globe. You know, there were far more days with unhealthy air quality in the 90s and 2000s, many years. Um, and I will just point out in California, in the same report, you know, for lower California, they had 176 to 254 bad air days in those wildfire places. So um, we need to do better, of course. And I think we're moving towards that. But there are places that have it much, much worse. All right, let's move on to what I think is interesting, given this piece of conversation, is the highlighting of the EV charging stations as part of the infrastructure bill that just got passed. And it's something that President Biden is highlighting as well. Here he is. This bill has also put Americans to work through a first-ever national effort to install electric vehicle charging stations. 500,000 charging stations nationwide along our highways and in rural and disadvantaged communities as well. Think about what that can mean to the American auto worker and the future of electric vehicles. And when you build a charging station, it spurs even more investment and more infrastructure around it. So, Cabell, if you have more EV charging stations, thereby more electric cars, right away we're going to see a drop in some of what we were just discussing about the polluted air from that report. Yeah, it would certainly deal with the range, you know, anxiety that so many people feel currently that have EVs. And it will also, if you see a charging station, that's automatically going to make you think of an electric vehicle versus when you see a gas station, you know, you automatically think of your gas car. It's just going to kind of slowly change the minds of folks about what's possible. Right. And I think that, you know, the overall price range of EVs right now are out of reach for most families. And so that's a problem we have yet to fix. 
And I'm hopeful that the infrastructure funds will support both of these efforts because I know that California produced a rebate system by executive order to get more EVs on the road. And my organization has filed a similar bill with that same idea to give folks an upfront voucher to purchase EVs if they trade in a higher emitting vehicle. So, you know, we need to tackle this at, at all fronts. You know, there's also the, the issue of people that live in apartment buildings and how will they charge their cars. So having more charging stations available and free to use, I think will get us on the path that we need to go to electrify cars for the future. Beth? Well, I can speak about this personally because we actually just bought the first new car we ever had, and it's an EV hybrid because we have range anxiety. Um, mm. So we, we we bought a hybrid, and, and the number of rebates was profound, and the trade-in for a used car was profound, and it is becoming more within reach, I think, for average people. Yeah, and I think I think this infusion of money into it is, is huge, actually. I mean, right now, we have like 107,000 gas stations. And we only have like 43,000 public EV charging stations. And take it from me, when you go to a public EV charging station, you can't get a full charge in a quick amount of time. So the more fast charge stations we have, the more, the more as Kabul said, the more people see them, it's going to become sort of ubiquitous on the landscape, I believe, including in Massachusetts. I think we're getting something like 63 million to Massachusetts from that funding to do have EVs. And I think that's going to really slowly change people's minds about the possibilities of EV vehicles in the future. Dr. Bernstein? We need to make sure that when we flip a light switch on, the lights come on. We need to make sure that the price of that electricity is as low as is possible so that we don't create energy and financial insecurity to low wealth communities. And we need to make sure that when the light switch goes on, uh, it protects the health of people and provides a livable planet for our children's future. And so when I think about the EV question or the electrified building question, my question is where are the electrons gonna come from? Well, right now, if we do that, the electrons are gonna come from those plants like Cabell was talking about, the peaker plants that are very polluting. So we have to work on getting fossil fuels out of our power grid. Hmm. Okay, I'm gonna wrap up with one thing that I just think is interesting and that's leaf blowers. I don't know why I hadn't thought about the fact of how are they powered. And of course, they're powered by gasoline. And they're everywhere, certainly here in with all of our leaves going around. But California now is set to become the first state in the country to phase out these gas-powered lawn equipment. What I didn't also realize is that there's an alternative. And I stumbled across a TV ad for a non-gas leaf blower. Here it is. Yeah, I've got an ego. An ego blower. The most powerful cordless blower on earth. It runs for an hour, recharges in minutes. Why mess with gas? With this much power, it's hard not to have an ego. So, Cavill, I'm going to start with you. Is the kind of legislation that California is looking at, could it be in Massachusetts soon? It certainly could. I mean, I don't know about you, but if there's anything the last year has taught me about working from home is that there are too many leaf blowers in my neighborhood. 
<laughs> I suffer in meetings and as do my colleagues when these leaf blowers unleash in our communities. Um, and there is, you know, there is a better way. We do have electric leaf blowers. We have electric lawnmowers. And, you know, I think that cities and towns recognize this. I've seen published articles from op-eds from communities like Arlington. I know that my community is trying to ban this gas-powered lawn equipment. To me, it's really low-hanging fruit that, you know, individual elected officials can get on board with and make their constituents happy. I think, Beth, what's interesting to me is this statistic, it's kind of mind-blowing, that operating a gas leaf blower for an hour can create as much smog-forming pollution as driving a Toyota Camry for 1,100 miles. That's intense. Yeah, I know. I was totally struck by that. Look, I'm all, I'm totally in favor of it. And I think a public opinion poll will say most people are in favor of this. And as usual, California is ahead of the curve. Yeah, I mean, these, these things are both important, not only definitely for climate, but I couldn't tell from that clip, Callie, if it's going to be quieter, too. That's well, it doesn't sound like it, does it? <laughs> I think not. But I think they were appealing to people who feel like they might be losing something if they if they don't have uh, the power of the, yeah. the gas. <laughs> Dr. Aaron Bernstein, you have the last word. To me, the issues around these leaf blowers and the gas that fuels them are first and foremost, the, the extraordinary toxic exposures that the individuals who use them get when they use them. It's like smoking cigarettes, except much more toxic. And so people who are hiring these individuals are now exposing them to really deadly pollutants. The second is that there is noise pollution, as we were talking about, and we underestimate noise pollution as a determinant of health, not just in our losing our voices because we can't hear each other, um, but there's research out of, for example, London, that noise pollution in the city is actually a predictor of premature death. And the third is that, to me, this is sort of a microcosm of the bigger climate debate, which is we need to start the conversation with the issues that matter most to the communities that are affected. So to me, I can't imagine a single person using one of these devices, if given the option, wouldn't transition off of gas. And so I think there's a real opportunity to leverage that voice and push these matters forward. And I think we're gonna see it. I think it's a question of when, not if. All right, we're gonna have to leave it there. I thank you all for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Great to be, Great to be here. Beth Daly is editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Cabal Eames is political director of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. And Dr. Aaron Bernstein, interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Coming up, author Douglas Wolk waded through more than 27,000 comics in order to trace the decades-long stories of the well-known superheroes and villains of the Marvel comic universe. He deconstructs the compelling, quirky, often non-linear narratives which have propelled the stories to pop culture icon status. Wolk tells all in his book, all of the Marvels, a journey to the ends of the biggest story ever told. Our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.